1 Corinthians chapter 1, the particular text that we're looking at is verses 26 through 31, but it will be very helpful to us if we uh, read the context beginning back in verse 10. So I'm going to ask you if you're able, uh, if you found your place, uh, would you stand with me? I like to do this. Um, in honor of God's Word. These are, of course, words written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, but they are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so we are uh, just as true and accurate in saying these are the words of God. Listen to what God has to say to us. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, 
righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we stand in need of your grace. We ask that you might pour that grace upon us this morning. Would you use this passage to teach us to boast in you and help us turn away from any and all human boasting? Lord, would you warm our hearts and open our eyes to see your glory revealed in Christ. And we pray it all in his name, for his sake. Amen. Thank you. Please go ahead and be seated. looking today at an important word that Paul uses a few times in this passage uh, and elsewhere in his writings, and that is the word boast. Of course, people like to boast about all kinds of things. Kings and captains and generals and soldiers like to boast. In fact, many examples that we see of boasting in ancient history come to us in a military context. It's the kind of things that, uh, it's the kind of thing that armies would do to get themselves ready for battle, sort of psych themselves up and stir up their courage. They would say something like, our hands are strong, our spears are sharp, we march forward for the glory of Sparta or Carthage or Rome, whatever city-state, whatever empire they're giving their allegiance to. The Old Testament gives us a few examples of military forces or leaders boasting before they go into battle. So the song of Israel at the Red Sea in Exodus 15 describes the Egyptian armies boasting as they close in on the apparently helpless Israelites. And this is what they say. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. We know that didn't turn out exactly the way the Egyptians were expecting, but it's a good example of what it means to boast in a biblical context. There's another enemy king later in Israel's history. King Ben-Hadad of Syria is making threats against Israel and against King Ahab, and Ahab sends a messenger back to Ben-Hadad to tell him, this is 1 Kings 20, he says, Let not him who straps on his armor, that is, getting ready for battle, boast himself as he who takes it off. We'd say that's a pretty good answer. He's telling the boastful king not to be too sure of himself. And in fact, God was going to come to the aid of Israel and humble uh, this mighty enemy king. There's another king who likes to boast about his accomplishments in the book of Daniel. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar looks upon the city of Babylon from the roof of his royal palace, and he says, Is not this great Babylon 
which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And God would choose to humble this mighty king as well. But it's not just kings and military leaders who like to boast. Athletes and intellectuals like to boast about their physical and mental prowess. See if you can keep up with me, right? Little boys like to boast about their daddies. My daddy can whoop your daddy. Parents like to boast about their kids. Grandparents like to boast about their grandkids. We have a president in the White House right now who is involved in a lot of controversy. And in our denomination and in this church, we have the liberty to agree or disagree with any number of his policies. Uh, One thing I think we're all in agreement about is he's pretty boastful. And many of his supporters actually like that, encourage that. There's one talk show host who tweeted, the Jewish people of Israel love Trump like he's the second coming of God. When President Trump read that, he should have recoiled in horror. Instead, he happily retweeted it. Well, these are examples of people boasting in themselves or in others. Some of the examples you may find comical. Uh, Some of them you may find despicable. Generally, what we think about someone's boasting depends largely on the value that we assign to the particular cause that they're boasting about, right? I'll say that again. Generally, what we think about someone's boasting depends largely on the value that we assign to the particular cause that they're boasting about. So if you think that Lane Wesley Duggins is the cutest grandbaby that was ever born, uh, you like to hear people talk about how cute and how precious he is. Not that I would have anyone in mind when I say that, of course. If you placed your confidence and your hope in the power of imperial Rome then you probably like to hear others boast about the might of Caesar and the Roman armies. Sometimes we think of boasting as something that is always bad or sinful. And that's actually not the way the Bible uses the term. There is such a thing as a valid boast if what you're boasting about is worth it. Of course, a boast becomes invalid if the claim is found to be false or if it's just not worth the amount of attention or recognition or praise that is being given. In the Middle Ages, the leaders of Christendom taught Christians to boast in the church. According to Catholic theology, the church was the storehouse of the merits of the saints. And if you belonged to the church, you could get some of those merits by doing certain deeds, maybe buying an indulgence, uh, making a pilgrimage to a shrine or some holy place, or viewing some relic. And during the Reformation, men like Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin raised their voices in protest against these abuses. They read the writings of the New Testament, especially the Apostle Paul, and they saw that how you define the gospel, where you tell people to place their trust, has a direct and immediate impact on what you boast about. It's really interesting to see how often Paul draws this connection between boasting and the gospel. So in Romans 3, right after he has stated the thesis of his letter, 
after concluding that no man can be justified before God by the works of the law, after arguing instead that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, that we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus to show God's righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, right after making that central argument, he asks the question, if all this is true, then what becomes of our boasting? And the answer is, it's excluded. And he goes on to explain that. What kind of law excludes human boasting? Not a law of works, because a law based on works allows us to boast in our works. But the law of faith strips away all human boasting, because it requires us to place our faith in God's work, not our own. So with what we've seen so far, I think we can get a pretty good idea of what Paul means when he uses this word to boast. Essentially, boasting is going vocal with what you place your confidence in. When we boast, we are verbalizing where we find hope and significance and sometimes even meaning and purpose in life. It's interesting to see how Paul develops this a little bit differently in 1 Corinthians as compared to his letter to the Galatians. The churches of Galatia were being tempted to go back to the Mosaic law as a source of righteousness. Paul saw that as a direct attack on the very foundation of the gospel. By the time he gets to the end of the letter, he says, here's the real problem. Those teachers who want you to be circumcised and go back to the requirements of Old Testament law, they're doing what they're doing because they want to boast in the flesh. And Paul's answer is we should boast in nothing except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in Corinth, the situation is partly similar and partly different. They're still being tempted to boast in men, but not so much the Jewish forms of self-righteousness as the Greek obsession with human wisdom. They were evaluating their leaders, living out their relationships with others, making decisions about what's most important and what's most valuable, all according to human standards and earthly appearances rather than God's revelation given at the cross. Paul says their boasting in men is a sign that they are carnal or fleshly. They are thinking and behaving in a human way instead of being informed and transformed by the Spirit of God. And the result of this fleshly perspective is that they're trapped in a state of immaturity. Now what we need to do with this passage in 1 Corinthians 1 is, I would say, considerably more difficult than simply identifying and criticizing the foolish boasting that we see in others. Uh, We need to look at our own hearts. We need to examine our attitudes and see if there are ways in which we contradict the gospel by boasting or placing our confidence in anything other than the work of God in Christ. So to do this, I want to divide the passage into two parts. And I think this actually reflects a similar division of the Old Testament passage that Paul is referring to. So in verse 31, he says, As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's a condensed version of Jeremiah 9, 
23 through 24, which we read earlier this morning in the call to worship. Verse 23 tells the people of Israel, first of all, what not to boast in. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Verse 24 tells us what we should boast in. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Well, Paul seems to follow that pattern because in verses 27 through 29, he tells us what God has done to keep people from boasting in his presence, that is, any any improper boasting. And then in verses 30 and 31, he tells us what God has done so that we might boast in him. What God has done to destroy human boasting, what we call boasting in the flesh, is to choose a people for himself that is not based on human accomplishment. For the most part, he says, it's not those who were wise according to worldly standards. It's not those who were powerful or of noble birth. God chose the foolish and the weak. He chose the low and the despised and the nobodies. Why? He says it's to shame the wise and the strong and those that think that they're somebody... And he does all this, according to verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, looking at this verse within the context of the situation there in Corinth, I think will help us to see what it looks like when we're boasting in men. And then, looking at Paul's alternative, which is verses 30 and 31, that will give us a much clearer picture of what it means to boast in the Lord. So this is what I want us to do with the rest of our time this morning. We want to answer those two questions. Number one, what does it look like when we boast in men? Number two, what does it look like when we boast in the Lord? So based on the ideas that we see in these verses and their context within the whole letter, here are some points I think we can make to try to apply to ourselves. So one sign or symptom of boasting in men is when we base our friendships and associations on earthly values instead of our unity in Christ. We may be boasting in men when we base our friendships and associations on earthly values instead of our unity in Christ. What are the things Paul mentions in verse 26 that are considered most important according to the world's way of thinking? Well, it's things like, how smart are you? How much education do you have? How successful are you? How much power and influence do you have? Which often means, how much money do you have? What is your ancestry like? Do you come from a good family? In the Corinthian church, it included things like, who has the most impressive spiritual gifts? And who has the most dynamic ministry? Because that's who I want to be like. That's who I want to hang out with. And that was even showing itself at the Lord's Supper, where those who were more wealthy were not making any effort to include the poor and the disadvantaged. There's social stratification taking place. I choose to associate with people who look like me, and those who are different are not really invited into the inner circle. Wisdom of the gospel cuts across that way of thinking. Because it says, God didn't choose me because I was popular 
or respectable or fit in with the right parts of society. He chose me in Christ so that I would glorify him for his mercy. And our closest friendships should be those that help us glorify Christ and allow us to help others glorify Christ. If the reason he has created me and redeemed me is to glorify him, then that should be the reason for the choices that I make as well. Now there's something else we see a few verses back in chapter 1. We also show that we are boasting in men when we divide over personality differences and pet issues that lead us away from the gospel. We show that we're boasting in men when we divide over personality differences and pet issues that lead us away from the gospel. And that's what sets the whole context for this discussion in the first place, right? Beginning in verse 10, Paul is appealing to these Christians for unity and he's rebuking them for quarreling and for dividing into different camps based on what leader they prefer. So some say, I follow Paul, some say, I follow Apollos, and so forth. Now, this is not to say that all division is bad or unnecessary. If someone is preaching another gospel, not the gospel of Christ, then Paul would say they're under God's curse. We cannot have true unity with them. But what makes these divisions in Corinth so absurd is Paul and Apollos and Cephas are all preaching the same gospel. Their followers are inventing distinctions that don't matter. So Paul asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Do your divisions make sense in light of the unity that has been purchased for you at the cross? I think that makes us want to evaluate the condition of Christianity today. About five centuries after the Reformation, almost 20 centuries after the Apostles, we would say the Christian church seems hopelessly divided over a whole bunch of issues. What we call modern denominationalism is really an attempt to recognize there are many genuine followers followers of Christ who nevertheless find it difficult, some might say impossible, to work together because of legitimate differences of conscience. Is that a sign of immaturity? Probably so. If it wounds your conscience to accommodate fellow Christians who believe differently than you do about, let's say, church government or church membership or miraculous gifts or whatever it is, it should also violate your conscience to cut off the conversation, to refuse to listen to a brother who is at least attempting to base his beliefs on Scripture. But it's difficult to listen carefully. And it's difficult to speak with patience and kindness when we're divided into various camps and we feel like we have to be loyal to our team. So that's going to bring up a third point, which is you'll see very closely related. We are boasting in men when we engage in denominational and theological elitism. We are boasting in men when we engage in denominational and theological elitism. So as I hinted at earlier, it's one thing to have biblical convictions, arguments that you're prepared to defend with Scripture and with sound reason. We are a Baptist church for a reason. There are certain things we believe about baptism and church membership and the covenants that compel us to practice church life in a certain way. We are also a Reformed church. 
There are certain things we believe about God's sovereign choice of whom he saves, we would say are taught right here in this portion of Scripture. But being Baptist and being Reformed is not what creates our core identity. Our true identity is we are in Christ. What a contradiction it is when we take precious doctrines of Scripture that are meant to humble us before God's sovereign majesty and fill us with gratitude for God's grace. And instead, we use them as a pretext for establishing our own superiority. We need to recognize how dangerous it is and how easy it is for a certain level of biblical knowledge and theological proficiency to conceal the heart of a Pharisee. We also need to recognize there's a lot more to Christianity than baptism and tulip. Let's assume for the moment, which I do believe, that we have understood Scripture correctly on these points. Being right in one area does not guarantee that you are right in every area. In fact, the T in tulip is supposed to teach us that our depravity makes it easy for things like pride and bias to lead us astray in a whole lot of ways. You may have a brother who is mistaken or weak in some of these areas. And he may be a whole lot stronger than you in other areas. And you should be able to learn from him or her if you're not too busy boasting about how much you already know. So in chapter 4, which is really part of the same big section of 1 Corinthians, it's still talking about boasting in men versus the true wisdom of the gospel. He says, verses 6 and 7, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, whatever gifts you have, whatever knowledge you possess, whatever advances you have made, do you think you earned it by your own cleverness or virtue? A true recognition of God's grace leaves no room for that kind of boasting. Now, there's another area in which we need to apply this principle. In some cases, our theological positions lead us to take certain political positions. And that's not necessarily wrong. But it does raise the question of how we participate in those kinds of controversial discussions. We are very likely boasting in men when we engage in controversy with an attitude that says, win at all costs. We're very likely boasting in men when we engage in controversy with an attitude that says, win at all costs. I would say we see examples of this on social media all the time. Those with opposing viewpoints are not treated as as people to be persuaded or even respected. They're more like threats to be crushed. Because after all, it's really gratifying to come up with just the right zinger that gets a bunch of likes, right? 
There are some exceptions. But much of what I have seen from Christians on social media really takes on the same tone as the rest of the world. If you are so committed to winning an argument that you are willing to shade the truth, to compromise your integrity, to make unsubstantiated accusations, to ignore the feelings of your opponent, then you are probably giving in to this mentality. If you are so committed to supporting a particular political candidate that you are willing to defend him for doing those very types of things, then you're probably boasting in men. You are placing an unfounded degree of confidence in someone who is not worth it. Now, it would be a misuse of this pulpit for me to tell you who to support for president or any political office, and that is not what I intend to do. But I am telling you to be careful how you support your candidate. More than that, if you see yourself going, going overboard, you need to ask yourself, why is this so important to me? It's entirely appropriate to care deeply about the direction of this country. It's right to care deeply about justice and righteousness in the public sphere. But James tells us the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's actually the reason he gives for telling us in the previous verse we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's the kind of wisdom that comes from above. That's what he describes in chapter 3. I want you to listen to each of these words. The wisdom from above is first pure. And it's peaceable. And it's gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. Does that sound like your Facebook page? Or is it full of another kind of wisdom? Well, there's one last observation I think we can make, another symptom or manifestation of boasting in men. We boast in men when we compare ourselves to one another by earthly standards, often calling undue attention to our own strengths and achievements while magnifying the faults and failures of others. We boast in men when we compare ourselves to one another by earthly standards, often calling undue attention to our own strengths and achievements while magnifying the faults and failures of others. When we fail to grasp the good news of our full acceptance by God in Christ, we feel like we have to work hard to keep up appearances, gain the approval and acceptance of others. We have to measure up in all these superficial ways in order to boost our self-esteem. Often we try to lift ourselves up by putting others down. And Paul will speak in his later letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 10, about those who commend themselves by measuring themselves by one another and comparing themselves with one another. He says they lack understanding. And that's pretty ironic, isn't it? Because they're seeking after wisdom. They're boasting in wisdom. 
but they haven't understood or applied the wisdom of the cross. Okay, as we've gone through these points, uh, you may see a lot of yourself in these Corinthians. You may be convicted that you are boasting in men and looking for your confidence in the wrong things. So, what are we supposed to do? Well, it's not enough to stop boasting in men. We have to learn to boast in the Lord. So, this is how we want to end. What does it look like when we boast in the Lord? And here I have four points. They're pretty brief. We boast in the Lord when we confess that salvation is from the Lord from beginning to end. We boast in the Lord when we confess that salvation is from the Lord from beginning to end. This whole passage is based on the premise that God saves sinners apart from human achievement. He chooses those who do nothing to contribute to their own salvation. He places them in union with His Son and then accomplishes salvation by a bloody, scandalous cross. He puts His wisdom and power on display by destroying the wisdom and power of men. When we confess these things to be true, when we agree with God about His power and wisdom revealed in the saving work of Christ, we are declaring where we find our confidence and hope. We also boast in the Lord when we rejoice in the saving benefits of our union with Christ. We boast in the Lord when we rejoice in the saving benefits of our union with Christ. This is verse 30. Paul is declaring what God has done for his people. He has placed them in Christ Jesus. He has united them in an extraordinary union with his Son. More than that, Paul is celebrating the benefits that come to us from that union. So in our union with Christ, Paul says first that Christ became wisdom to us from God. And that is not the same as saying that Christ gave us wisdom, as if it's something in a box that we receive, and then we walk away and say, now I have wisdom. Christ became to us wisdom from God. He is the wisdom. He is the wise plan of God that brought about our salvation. And then Paul develops that thought by telling us what's included in that wise plan. As God's wisdom, Christ becomes our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Some commentaries think those three terms show sort of a a chronological progression. So Christ becomes our righteousness. That is the verdict by which we are declared innocent and accepted into God's family. And then sanctification Sometimes in Paul's writings, that's the new status that belongs to us as believers, but in this case, I think he may be referring to our continued growth in holiness. And then redemption often has in view that day of final salvation when we are delivered from indwelling sin and from life in this present evil age. Well, it doesn't matter so much, so much, I don't think, the particular nuance you place on each individual word. The point is these amazing gifts of salvation has come to us in Christ. And Paul is teaching us this is where you place your confidence. This is where you find your joy. This is what you boast about. And then there's another point we can see in this broader section of 1 Corinthians. We boast in the Lord when we embrace 
the paradoxical and hidden nature of God's wisdom and call others to do the same. We boast in the Lord when we embrace the paradoxical and hidden nature of God's wisdom and call others to do the same. The paradox of God's wisdom is the theme he develops in verses 18 through 25. The point he's making is that God's wisdom doesn't look very wise when his son is mocked and beaten and nailed to a cross. God's power doesn't look very powerful when Jesus is lying dead in a grave. It's why he calls it a secret and hidden wisdom of God in chapter 2. The rulers of this age didn't understand it, but those who have the Spirit see it and find it glorious. They're willing to stake their lives on the fact that the way things are now is not the way they're always going to be. In fact, they're so willing to embrace it that it's not just a private faith they keep to themselves. Paul says, we impart this wisdom to others. He's willing to take the risk of confronting his brothers in Christ when they fail to live out that message consistently in their own lives. He says in Colossians that he rejoices in his sufferings for the sake of Christ's body so that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. What is that mystery? It's Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul loved the idea that mankind could not attain to the knowledge of this mystery by their own wisdom. God has revealed his wisdom in the most unexpected, most unimaginable way possible. He's revealed his wisdom on a cross. Do you love that? Do you speak of it often to others? That's what it looks like to boast in the Lord. There's one last observation I think we can make. We learn to boast in the Lord when we make the passions and prayers of the prophets and the Psalms our own. We learn to boast in the Lord when we make the passions and prayers of the prophets and the Psalms our own. We've seen here how Paul has really internalized and then developed the idea of Jeremiah chapter 9 in light of the work of Christ and the new covenant. But it's not just Jeremiah. It's actually, this idea of boasting in God is actually all over the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it will come to its fruition. So listen to what David says in Psalm 34, verses 2 and 3. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And then listen to the words of Psalm 44, verse 8. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. Notice how boasting in both of those references is tied to the idea of God's name. So this is how God's people respond when he rescues them from slavery in Egypt. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. What are they doing? Moses and Miriam and the Israelites are boasting in the Lord. 
Because over and over again, God declares this purpose for the mighty deeds that he does. When he leads them through the wilderness, when he takes them to their possession in the promised land, when he builds a house for his name and then destroys that house, when the Israelites profane it with their many abominations, Here's what he says through the prophet Ezekiel as he rehearses really his whole history of dealing with them in the land of Egypt and the wilderness and the coming exile. He says, I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned among the nations. That's Ezekiel chapter 20. Repeats it several times. I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned among the nations. It's what he says when he promises to restore and forgive them and bring them back to their land. In a a few chapters later, Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and 23, he says, here's what he says. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. That purpose is reiterated after a small remnant has returned to the land in Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. God says through Malachi, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, My name will be great among the nations. In every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God cares about his name. He wants the nations to know the greatness and holiness of his name. And when we capture that vision... And we make those passions our own. And we take the prayers of the Psalms and make those prayers our own. We will learn to boast in the Lord. Because if we see what the prophets saw when they prophesied about the coming kingdom. And we feel what the psalmist expressed when he mourned over Israel's defeats. And rejoiced over the display of God's glory. We will see God's name is worth it. God's name, God's kingdom, God's glory, all realized in Jesus Christ, as we're taught in the New Testament. The wisdom of God and everything that includes righteousness, sanctification, redemption, all given to you at the cross. That's something worth boasting about. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we confess together that your name is great. There was a time we did not see that. We were in darkness. We wanted to uh, lift up our own name. You chose us when we had done nothing to deserve it. You united us with Christ, and in Him we have true wisdom. We have 
the righteousness, the sanctification, the redemption that we needed. We have all things in Christ, and we want to give the rest of our lives to boasting in Him. Would you help us to do that? We pray it all in His name. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.